Let me also remind you that uh, following the service, uh, there will be ushers at the exits uh, that will collect our deacons fund offering. We do that each uh, Sunday that we observe communion. Uh, That's the fund that uh, we help those uh, who are in need in our congregation. That's the only fund that we have uh, for that purpose. So I would ask that you would give generously to that. Uh, And like I said, deacons will be there at the doors to collect that as you leave. If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 6. Uh, your worship bulletin says 1 through 14 is what we'll be looking at. I'll, I'll actually just read 1 through 11. 942, I believe it is in your pew Bible. This is a doctrine that Paul is teaching. He teaches throughout his epistles, but in a concentrated way here in our passage this morning, what's called union with Christ. Uh, we are united with Christ. Sometimes it says we are in him or we are with him. That's what Paul's talking about when he uses that language. Uh, It's a doctrine that I I don't think we talk about enough. Uh, It's highly practical for our Christian life. We are united to him. But what does that really mean? How does that encourage us in the Christian life? Well, I hope that will be clear as we go along. We are united with him. What what are all the implications of that? Uh, I trust that that will be clear as we move along this morning. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come to you again this morning. We pray that you would teach us from your word, Lord, that you would show us that we have died to our old self, the old sinful life, and we are now have been made new and alive in Christ. And Lord, we do that. We, this new life we have is because of you. We know that we are yours, and we are in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this summer, uh, Lauren, my wife, Nathan and Miles, my two boys, we are going to get on a plane and fly to Chicago for four days. Uh, I have an older brother, Chris, and I have a younger sister, Kelly. Kelly just moved up to Chicago. We're going up there to visit her. She's a school teacher, uh, lives just off Lincoln Park, a very nice area of Chicago, and we're going to go visit her for a few days. Uh, and we're already very stressed out about this trip. Uh, traveling with a five and one year old seems awful, but we're going to go visit my sister, so we're trying to have a positive attitude about it. Uh, and the Cubs are not in town, so that's also disappointing. But we're excited to go visit Kelly, okay? We're looking forward to spending a few days with her. Now, let's say the trip comes around, and one of you in here, you got very interested to know whether one of your pastors arrived safely on his trip, okay? So you, even without communicating with us, you could be reasonably certain whether or not we arrived safely in Chicago. You could find out what flight or what the airline was that we were flying on. You could find out what our flight number was. And like I said, without even communicating with us, you could be relatively sure whether or not we arrived in Chicago safely. 
Now, I'm not trying to be confusing here. I'm, I'm not, this isn't a riddle of some kind. This is, I'm trying to explain to you what really is a beautiful doctrine. It's the doctrine of our union with Christ. You see, the key relationship this summer that we're going to have with the plane that we're flying on is whether or not we're in the plane. We don't need to be beside the plane. We don't need to be underneath the plane. We don't need to be just deriving some inspiration from the plane. We need to be in the plane. This is important because whatever happens to the plane will also therefore happen to us. If the plane experiences some turbulence, then so will we. If the plane increases in altitude or speed, then the same thing will happen to us. Lord willing, this won't happen, but if the plane crashes and burns, then we too will crash and burn. Whatever is true of the plane will be true of the Wyatts. So the question of did the Wyatts make it to Chicago safely will be part of a larger question of did the plane make it safely to Chicago. The doctrine of our union with Christ is very similar to what I have just described, if you're not yet confused. Whatever is true of Christ is also true of Christians. Since Christ died on the cross, we died with him. The old person, the old self, literally was crucified, dead, and buried. Christ died, therefore we died. Christ was raised, therefore we were raised and will be raised. Christ was vindicated, we were vindicated. Christ is loved by the Father, we too are loved by the Father. The list could go on. Sinclair Ferguson says that this doctrine of union with Christ is a doctrine which lies at the heart of the Christian life, a truth to which the New Testament constantly returns. In other words, this isn't just, oh, it was nice that we talked about a doctrine that's not really that important, but it's kind of over here on the periphery. No, this is something that is important for you and me every single day. We are united with him. We are united with our Savior. So what all does that exactly mean for our daily lives? Wouldn't you like to know if, it's, if it really is this, uh, uh, if there is such great application, what is all of that application? Well, because we have been united to Christ... We are not now free to live however we please. I'm not saved in Christ to go and continue living as I once did. I've been changed. We are free to live for Christ since we have died with him. Freedom in the Christian sense is not to do whatever I please. Freedom is now I have been changed so that I can obey. I've been changed so that I can now live faithfully. So there's two points this morning. The wrong application of the gospel and the right application of the gospel. The wrong way that the gospel is viewed and then played out in life, and then the correct way, according to Paul. So the wrong application. If you were to give a heading of the first five chapters of the book of Romans, you might say it's justification by faith. There are other issues that it talks about, but in a general sense, this is what Paul's trying to tell us. This is how we are saved. We are justified by faith. Now, what does all that mean? Well, he goes into three chapters of describing our sin, uh, how we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, how there is no one that does good. There's no one that seeks after God, no one who truly understands. In chapter 1, Paul talks about as God removes his hand away from us, this is all the sinful life that we're going to now see. He shows us the bad news, and then he goes to the good news. He says in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, as he quotes the Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. This is justification. This is legal type language. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
There was once a break in the relationship between us and God, but now there's reconciliation because of Jesus. There used to not be peace, and now there is because of Christ. So as a result of this justification, as a result of, this, of us being saved, now what? Well, Paul kind of wraps up this justification conversation at the very end of chapter 5 when he says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. So the law came in, and when it did, trespasses and sin increased. (laughs) What do you want to do when you hear you're not supposed to do something? You want to do that, right? So when, when it was clearly defined what we were not supposed to do, trespasses increased. But then grace abounded all the more. Grace came in and came on top of that. But Paul is saying, isn't this wonderful, this amazing grace in Christ? Now what do we do with it? (laughs) So what shall we say then, as he asks, as chapter 6 begins? What do we say to this? How do we respond to it? What do you personally do? Well, some were responding wrongly. Some were teaching that salvation by grace alone gives people a free pass, a license. Live however you want to. You got the insurance that you needed in Christ? Now go do however you please. It seems to be, doesn't it, the logical conclusion of someone who has sinned, then received grace, they've been forgiven, why not continue to do evil that good may come? If, if my sinning brings more grace, this is fantastic. I can just sin and sin and sin, and more grace and more grace and more grace. This is wonderful. Some commentators believe that Paul in verse 1 was actually quoting a slogan, continue in sin that grace may abound, as if that was being taught. Don't don't worry, Christian, continue in sin that grace may continue to be heaped upon you. If works mean so little when it comes to our salvation, then why even perform them at all? It's today what we call antinomianism. You may or may not be familiar with that term. It's just anti-law. It's a person who maybe professes faith in Christ, but wants to continue to live as someone who is not in Christ and not saved. They are a Christian in name only, if you will. It's true that our works don't impact our justification, but they do impact our life once we come to Christ because we have been united with Him. How can we live in what we have died to, Paul asks. So he answers this wrong application very emphatically in verse 2. He says, by no means, and absolutely not, are you kidding me? You can't continue in sin that grace may abound. Absolutely not, he says. This is not possible. And not only is it not possible, it's not permissible. A Christian should not do this. Okay, so what's the right application? If that's incorrect, what's correct? Paul is saying to continue in what we have died to is an impossibility for us as a Christian. Paul's not saying that it's literally impossible for a Christian to sin. Personal experience, of course, would tell you that that's not true. But not only that, is he goes into chapter 7, and he starts this, all the things that I know that I'm supposed to do, I'm not doing them. And all the things I know that I'm not supposed to do, that's what I find that I really want to do. (laughs) What wretched man that I am, Paul exclaims at the end of chapter 7. He's not saying this is what he used to be. He's saying, this is what I am as a Christian. I find this warring within me, this this continued urge to want to sin. What Paul is saying that is impermissible as a Christian now is the settled lifestyle, the unrepentant, the, the habitual life of sin. The, yes, I know that that was wrong, and I just don't care. 
I'm just going to continue to do it. I'm saved in Christ. You see, Christ's death paid the penalty for sin. We incurred a penalty when we sinned, okay? And so a death was necessary. Jesus substituted for us. He paid that penalty. Jesus also conquered the power of sin. You used to be completely enslaved to sin, whereby that's all you wanted to do, and whereby even the very thoughts and everything was permeated with sinfulness. Christ broke that power. Now you have the ability to please God and to do things very faithfully. But there's a continued presence of sin in this world. You live in a sinful world. You, you continue to do things that are sinful. But not in a settled, unrepentant way. Not in something where you're not battling and fighting against it. <clears throat> Paul wants us to know that one of the benefits of, the union, of our union with Christ is that we have died to our sin. And if we've died to it, then we can't continue to willfully live in it. He goes on in verse 3 to say that our justification, we've been baptized into Christ, and as a result of that, baptized into his death. Baptism signifies a cleansing. We're, we've been cleansed by his blood. It signifies a birth. You're physically born one time. You're also spiritually born one time, and baptism points us to that. R.C. Sproul says it this way. Our spiritual history began at the cross. We were there in the sense that in God's sight, we were joined to him who actually suffered on it. The time element should not disturb us. Because if we sinned in Adam, it's equally possible to have died to sin with Christ. The emphasis of these first few verses of chapter 6 are that we are so profoundly identified with Christ's death and resurrection that we actually did die with him and truly were raised with him so that we now share in his resurrection life. Paul five times in these first eight verses describes this union with Christ and how we are united in his death. Our salvation is not just that we're declared forgiven. It is that. But we're declared new. We're declared changed. Is that evident in your life? The old person is gone. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I imagine that there are many of us here this morning that some of us need to be admonished with this truth. Some of you need to be encouraged with it. Some of you need to be rebuked that you don't consider your union with Christ. And some of you need to be lifted up again. You need to see that you're united with him. The grace of God is not an excuse to sin. It's not a freedom to live as we please. It's a freedom to pursue Christ. Some of us need to take a hard look at our sins. Those sin or sins that so easily, daily it seems, entangle you and trip you up. You are united with Christ. You have died to those things. That's a part of the old man. That's a part of the old way. You're, you're new now. You walk in newness of life in pursuing holiness and righteousness. Some of us struggle with some of the things we preached on back in January. Justin preached on gossip. Some of that's, that is your sin of choice. You can't wait to go out and tell someone after the service is over what you heard someone else say about whatever it was. It's, you've died to that. Don't do it anymore. Some of, for some of you, we preached on forgiveness. And it, resentment, resentment and bitterness is something that you pursue instead of forgiveness and repentance. For some of us, we can't let go of that thing that that person did to us because, quite frankly, if we did, we'd feel like we were letting them off the hook. And they're not sorry for what they did, so why should I forgive them? We have died to that. Why are we living in it? 
We've been forgiven by our Savior. Why are we not willing to forgive others? And many more things that we could say. And others, we continue to give in to the temptation of lust. It seems to tempt us everywhere we turn. We have died to this. Why do we continue to live in it? I'm not just up here shaking my finger at you, telling you to, you need to stop this. Although that's true, you do need to stop it. I'm telling you, you're in Jesus. You are united with your Savior. We can no longer live in those things. It can't be habitual. It can't be that we are marked by this anymore because we've been changed. The gospel is not a license to live as we please. You were not justified to go back and live as the old man did. Others of us, however, need to be encouraged with this truth. You need to be lifted up again. Some of you in here, I would imagine, you truly don't feel like you can or want to go on another day. The pain and the disappointment of your life, the frustration of your life, the anxiety and stress of your life can seemingly choke you out. And you don't want to do this anymore. You are united with Christ. Be encouraged. Take courage from that. He is with you. He is walking alongside of you. He's not somewhere that just to, to give you a pep talk and everything's going to be okay in the end. He's, you are united with your Savior. He is with you. We are tempted every day. And we think we can't overcome it because we think we've got to overcome it in our own strength. I just, I, I, I can't do that. I can't overcome this. I can't get past this sin and temptation because we think it's about our own strength and willpower. We're not drawing on our strength of union with Christ. And there's some of us in here, this past week you sat before your computer or you had your phone in your hand, and the yearning to look at pornography hit you for what seems like the millionth time. You are united with Christ. This is not, we're dead to that sin. We're dead to our sin. Let's walk now as changed people in newness of life, putting behind us, putting over here the old way, killing it, mortifying it, putting it to death, and walking in newness of life. And then some of us in here, we are coming to the end of our life. I don't know what that, that means or feels, but I imagine that there is a measure of uncertainty and that there is a measure of fear. You too are united with Christ. And he who began a good work in you will see it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Take encouragement from your being united with Christ. So Paul says this right application is putting to death sin, but also being made alive in Christ. If we were to use our theological terms here, we would say mortification, which is putting to death your sin. As John Owen said, if you're, either you're killing your sin or it's going to be killing you. We're, we're actively saying, I'm, I'm putting this to death, I'm not doing it anymore. And then on the positive side, it's what's called vivification. We are now putting on these, the righteousness of God, pursuing holiness and faithfulness. Our death to sin is but once. The life we live is now continuous. Imagine your life as two volumes. You have volume number one, your life before you came to Christ. And then volume number two, your life since coming to Christ. Volume number one is over, and it ended in a death, a death on a cross, a death that you were united with Christ. That old person, the former person, is gone, dead. In the second volume of your life, it, it began. It began with a resurrection. It began with a new birth. This is who you are now. 
This is who you are that has an ability now to live faithfully to God. Now has an ability to please him when formerly you could not. Does that describe you? Or does it, is it more descriptive of you someone who is continually wanting to go back, seeking that old man? I pray that that's not so. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, says, The pursuit of holiness requires sustained and vigorous effort. It allows for no indolence, no lethargy, no half-hearted commitment, no laissez-faire attitude toward even the smallest sins. In short, it demands the highest priority in the life of a Christian, because to be holy is to be like Christ, God's goal for every Christian. (coughs) I imagine that when you think that you're walking closest with the Lord, there is effort that you're putting forth. You're pursuing him. You are reading the scriptures. You're meditating on them. You're praying to him. You're fellowshipping with other believers. You're sitting underneath the preaching and teaching of God's word. You are putting forth effort. You're setting your mind on the things above. You're not setting your mind on the things of this earth. It's something that requires daily discipline. The incredible athletes that we admire on television, they didn't just roll out of bed and be that good. They put forth effort day after day after day, and the same is expected in our Christian life. Are you putting forth the effort that's necessary? What I'm about to say, I don't say this boastfully at all. I say this as someone who is learning this, not learned it, learning this. When I am tempted in sin in my own life, the Lord often reminds me of this, of my union with Christ. Andy, you've died to this. This is what the old man did. This is not what the new person does. This is what you put off. This is not what you have now put on. Think on your union with Christ. Think on it daily. So how do we do this? Let me close with these application points. Number one, we've got to know our enemy. We've got to know that Satan wants nothing more than to convince you that you are still under his powerful influence of sin. He wants nothing more than for you to think that there is really nothing you can do in the face of temptation. He wants you to feel defeated and overwhelmed and discouraged. He doesn't want you to think on your union with Christ. Secondly, we need to know ourselves. This life of sanctification, there's going to be ebbs and flows. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be times when you feel like the growth is painfully slow and times you may not feel like you're growing at all. Sin is enticing. Discouragement is around every corner, but don't give up. That simply is not an option. Jerry Bridges, also in the book that I just mentioned, The Discipline of Grace, he uses a great illustration, an illustration of an airplane. One of the wings is dependence. We're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We need his power. We need his encouragement. And the other wing of the plane is our discipline, the effort we have to put in, the ordinary means of grace that we must avail ourselves to, and we need both of them. We need both of these wings so that we may pursue holiness and continue on in this Christian life. Thirdly and lastly, as James Boyce says, this life of a Christian, this life of walking with him is about knowing what has happened to you. Do you know what Christ has done for you? We're going to celebrate it just a moment here at the table. Do you know that the death is what did happen to the old man? Are you... Can it be said of you, I'm walking differently. I have put on a new self. The new truly has come. This is a truth that we ought to constantly come back to. 
be renewed in, be refreshed by, taking great encouragement in. Are we pursuing holiness? Are we pursuing our Savior? Are we pursuing this for God's glory? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for our time we've had this morning. Lord, thank you for this doctrine of union with Christ. Thank you that we are united with him. Thank you that we have died the death, that you died the death on our behalf, Lord, for our sin. And Lord, that we have been raised into newness of life, and that we would walk in it. And we would put to death that old man. It's something that must be done continuously each and every day. We depend, be dependent upon you for that and also be disciplined in our efforts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.